Tell the Romans in a damn parade. Hi, and thanks for downloading. This is the Ancient History Hound podcast. Hello, my name's Neil, and in this podcast, I'll be talking about Rome's sixth king, Servius Tullius. If you haven't realised, this is part of my Kings of Rome series. I started it with a Foundation of Rome episode, and have been covering each of the seven kings. This is a period of Rome's history which I find fascinating, due to the fact that it is formed from a collection of stories and myths which were most likely composed many centuries later, and then retrospectively applied. I've spoken about this more in my Foundation of Rome episode, but it's always worth bearing in mind that our surviving sources are 1st century BCE in Livy and Dionysus of Halicarnassus, and their sources don't seem to have stretched that far back. In fact, there's a good argument that the Romans started to form their own history in the period of around the 3rd century BCE. But this doesn't mean it's all fiction. The themes of this period, social upheaval, political restructures and war, don't require huge suspension in disbelief. It's just how they're set out in detail. And this is very much relevant to a particular reform I'll come to in this podcast. And occasionally, an association checks out. If you listen to my podcast on the previous King Lucius, we have an archaeological evidence to date both the sewers and the Circus Maximus to his period or around that time. So it's not always just a good story, though there are many of them. But then, if you're weighing these stories up in terms of their validity as to whether they're true or not, you're missing a huge opportunity. There's an irony in that whether the stories are true or not isn't really about their value. What's more important, certainly what I feel is more important, is this is how Rome presented its past to both itself and other people. Which is really strange, as the events in the reign of Rome's seven kings would make your average Greek tragedy look like a Mills and Boone novel. And regards with Servius Tullius, this reaches a new high or low in terms of violence. His is a roller coaster of a reign involving political reform, military reform, war revenge, and even a flaming phallus. Yeah, you heard me correctly there. Servius' accession to the throne at Rome wasn't something which happened in isolation. To try and treat it as a distinct narrative of its own would be a fool's errand, and the rise of Servius had much to do with the previous king, and even towards the end of his reign, Servius was referencing political events which had occurred in the previous king's lifetime. The king prior to Servius was Lucius Tarquinius. Like other kings such as Romulus and Numa, he was a non-Roman. Lucius was an Etruscan who, though very wealthy, was excluded from the power structure in his home city of Tarquinia because his father had been from Corinth. He was new money and the elite in Tarquinia were not interested in him. Though he wasn't part of the elite, he did marry into it and married Tanaquil, who we'll hear about plenty in this episode. Tanaku was presented to us as a shrewd political operator and also highly ambitious. She was the driving force which pushed Lucius or Lucomo, as he was originally known in Tarquinia, to leave for Rome to make his new money mean something more than just having another nice Greek vase on the shelf. At Rome, the newly named Lucius Tarquinius was a political success, becoming friends with the then king Ancus Marcius. When the king died, Lucius was well placed politically to win the election mainly because he had been astute in winning favour with all sections of the Roman populace. The only mark against his name was that he managed to keep the sons of the recently deceased king, known as the Sons of Ancus, and make a note of that because they'll be back later, away at the time of the election, presumably because they may have been viable rivals. Towards the end of his reign, these Sons of Ancus started stirring trouble. 
and bringing out various complaints against Lucius, one being that they'd been cheated in some way of being candidates for the throne. Initially, the attempted coup failed, and the sons of Ancus came to bury the hatchet in the figurative sense and make up. This they did, then waited a few years. Sensing that the ageing king wasn't going to be around much longer, they then returned to bury a more literal hatchet, hiring a couple of thugs to kill the king with an axe to the head. As you might imagine, this is all covered in my previous Roman Kings episode on Lucius, and part of the reason I wanted to give a brief overview of this is because I'll be mentioning some of these events later. Trust me, they'll be quite relevant. Where are we then? The year was 575 BC or thereabouts, and to give you some reference to other events, Jerusalem had fallen to the Babylonians, beginning the Babylonian exile of the Jewish people 12 years earlier, and Pythagoras was about five years from being born. Initially, the news of King Lucius's death was kept quiet. The dead king's wife Tanaquil realised what was at stake. If the Roman people knew that the assassination had been a success, then the outcome would not be good for her and her children, and this was more than a fair assumption. What Tanaquil did next underlines how intuitive she was, and possibly why Lucius had done so well with her guidance. Tanaquil announced to the people from a window in the palace that the king had suffered a nasty wound, but wasn't dead. He just needed to run it under a cold tap. Whilst the king was recuperating, she'd have Servius act in his place. It was a masterstroke down to the fine detail. It immediately turned the tables on the sons of Ancus, who were most likely measuring up the curtains in the palace, and hadn't thought that this might occur. They thought they had been successful. It would have unsettled any senators who supported them and also gave the people hope that a king who they had a strong affiliation towards wasn't dead. The fact that this was done from a window was a cherry on the cake. Here was a modest wife, not willing to leave her house when her husband was ill. Top marks all round for Tanaquil. And all of this was to buy time because Tanaquil's plan was to allow the people to get used to Servius as a king. It looked to normalise what was effectively a dynastic succession. Servius had been adopted into the family and even married Tarquinia, a daughter of both Lucius and Tanaquil. Before I go further, there's one obvious question. Why Servius? Why not either of the two sons which Lucius and Tanaquil had? Well, the latter question is more easily answered. It seems that both the sons of Lucius and Tanaquil were too young at the time, and this feeds into a slight problem we have, which I'll pick up much later on. As such, Servius was the only viable candidate, but it doesn't really get to why. And I'm glad, because why Servius came to be in the position he now was contains one of the more bizarre stories you'll ever hear. The first option as to why Servius had rise, risen and his origins is as dull as it is plausible, and both Livy and Dionysus seem to have this down as their preferred choice. If you listen to the episode on Lucius, you'll remember that he subdued the Latin cities during various campaigns. One of these cities, Corniculum, was conquered during the fighting and its inhabitants were taken as slaves. One of these slaves was a noblewoman called Ocrisia, whose husband had died in the fighting. She was already pregnant and given to Tanaquil, who immediately realised her nobility and freed her from slavery. The two became good friends, as you might, with someone whose husband destroyed their city and killed her husband. The pregnant Acrisia gave birth to a son called Servius because of his slave status or that of his mother's, and thus we have Servius drawn into the royal court, as it were. There was also a story that Servius was just a normal slave until one day people noticed that while he slept, his head had burst into flames. 
Whilst everyone panicked, Tanakul heard the commotion and rushed to the scene and realised that this was a portent and the sleeping boy was destined for great things as opposed to being listed as a fire hazard. As with the episode on Lucius, here is Tanakul acting in two ways. Firstly, she is the definitive expert on signs and omens. Secondly, she's placed at the start of something. In this case, it's the realisation of a character's destiny. And this was also the case with Lucius, as she had read the incident with him in the, in the eagle as they travelled to Rome as the positive sign that he'd rise to become king or become someone very important. In that case, Tanakul is two for two. She provides the backdrop for the origin story of two kings of Rome. Now we come to the highly implausible story of Servius's origin. Dionysus commented that this raises the circumstances attending to the realm of the fabulous, and I don't think he's underselling it at all. Apparently, there was a slave woman called Acrisia, and she was working in the palace and attending to her normal duties near the hearth. Suddenly, a flaming phallus rose out from it, causing no small concern to her and the rest of the kitchen staff. Fortunately, Tarquinia was on hand to interpret what this was all about. Be it a sleeping child or hovering genitalia, if it's on fire, Tanaquil knows what to do. After consulting a few soothsayers, Tanaquil ordered that Acrisia needed to spend time alone with the flaming phallus, and to use a modern euphemism, Netflix and chill, or in this case, Netflix and searing. Acrisia was dressed as a bride and left overnight in the room with her hot new lover. Perhaps it was the bridal outfit that put it off, but once the deed was done, the phallus evaporated. As you would expect, Acrisia was made pregnant and the child born from the union was Servius. Father's Day must have been a very strange time for him, particularly with all those candles around the palace. And though this sounds ludicrous, and it is, the tale of fire and pregnancy wasn't original. The founder of a Roman town called Prinesti was born after his mother had been impregnated when a spark from the hearth landed on her lap as she sat next to it. The deity in this instance was the Roman god Vulcan, the Greek version being Hephaestus. And if we're talking about unusual ways deities got intimate with mortals, then Zeus has got a few things to tell you. Once in the household, Servius was an able commander and became a firm favourite. His rise to prominence was made complete when he was married to Tarquinia, as I mentioned, the daughter of Lucius and Tanaquil. And here's one reason Tanaquil needed him as cover for the king. He was family. The movement from acting as a king to becoming a king wasn't automatic. The process at this time, though not particularly clear, seems to involve the Senate suggesting a candidate, or possibly candidates, and then the people of Rome voting or confirming the Senate's choice. It was crucial for any new king or someone vying to one to ensure they had the backing of all level society, and Servius' initial acts looked to get the common citizens on side as soon as possible. Servius cancelled debts and allotted land to those who had none. Straight away, the appeal was made to shore up support which Lucius had with the lower class citizens. The elephant in the room was how legitimate all of this was. As you expect, there was a faction within the Senate who weren't particularly keen on Servius. They might have been allied to the sons of Ancus, or perhaps they just didn't like that a fundamental right of theirs, the involvement in selecting a new candidate as king, had been taken from them. The obvious play for them would be to challenge this but they realised how popular Servius was. He had the political cachet from the royal household and had just made life a lot better for a lot of the populace. Who at this time would then want to stand as candidate against him? If you did, you might be considered as someone behind the assassination of the previous king, or at best, you were simply marking your own card and, well, we all know how nasty Roman politics was. It was therefore best to do nothing, don't have an election, 
and when it was safer, the whole legitimacy argument could be made. But Servius, or perhaps Tanaquil, realised this, and Servius spoke directly to the Roman populace, asking for their validation for him as their king. It was a sound tactic, but like so many made at the beginning of a reign, it had consequences that would come back towards the end of it. Both the sources attach a number of accomplishments to Servius, and these are largely domestic, and what I mean is they aren't predominantly in picking fights with neighbouring tribes. And one major one is the Servian reform, which I'll come to, but there was also the walls which bear his name today. The Servian walls are named somewhat anachronistically after Servius. It was a wall and Sue's defences built from stone quarried from an area which Rome only got hold of in the 4th century BCE, hence their date to that period. Yet there is a counter to this. Stone has been located in the later walls and in the other areas and this is a local stone, so it would have been accessible during the earlier period and it was also cut to a dimension which was being used around this time. What seems to be an accepted is that there is a set of fortifications in the regal period. For some, this was formed of embankments and a ditch, and for others, an embankment, ditch, and varying lengths of stone walls. Trust me, it's really quite hotly debated. The process of extending and building these walls also meant increasing the Pomerian, the sacred boundary of the city. Here, Livy cites the influence of the Etruscans in Rome's attitude to the Pomerium and the city wall. For the Etruscans, the route a wall took was sacred and involved rites of some fashion. As a result, buildings weren't permitted to touch the wall and either side of it was considered a sacred space. And at the start of this podcast, I spoke about how the stories of early Rome are largely mythic, but occasionally you get to glimpse some sort of reality behind it all. And take the story of Romulus and Remus. Again, I covered this in my Foundation of Rome episode and tried to unwrap the myth of their falling out. And it was over fortifications which had been dug. Now, if we understand that these had a cultural and religious weight to them, then the act of Remus mocking or jumping over Romulus's fortification or wall starts to make more sense, at least in the reaction Romulus had to it. Aside from the physical space of Rome, Servius concerned himself with the Servian reforms, which were far-reaching and for many put a proverbial pin in the timeline for how Rome was and what it became. The Servian reforms link wealth with how you voted and how you fought, and a discussion of one is difficult to have without a discussion of the other. But just like poor Acrecia locked in that room, I'm going to try and give it a go and hope not to get burnt. It all started with the census, Rome's first. Each citizen was assessed on what property and wealth they had. From this, five classes were drawn up. Class 1 was the elite families, with class 2 closely behind it. In a way, these two classes formed the upper class of Rome. Classes 3, 4 and 5 continued the sliding scale of wealth, with the fifth class owning the least. In addition to this, each class was further divided into centuries. Class 1 had 80 centuries, and these were further divided into 40 senior and 40 junior. You don't have to worry too much about this detail for the time being. Class 2 only had 20 centuries in total, 10 junior, 10 senior. Likewise, class 3 and 4. Class 5, the very poorest, had 30 centuries in total, 15 junior and 15 senior. That the top two classes had more centuries than the other classes combined might come across as bizarre, and in fairness, it's not an incorrect response to have. And it's only after you realise that centuries could fluctuate in terms of number that it begins to make a bit more sense. In fact, a better way of thinking of it 
is considering a century as a voting block. These top two classes had more, but that didn't mean there were more rich people than poorer ones. It just meant that they were divided up into more voting blocks. Think of a first-class section on a plane or a first-class train carriage. It's still a carriage or section, but with fewer people in it. The centuries of the lower classes most likely held far more people, but in Rome it didn't seem that your vote really was that equal. It was about your social class. And this was because vote was taken in order of class. The centuries in the third class would vote, and this was done with each century giving its vote as a collective thumbs up or thumbs down, as it were. It was presumed that if you're in a century, you'd meet and decide, and then a representative of your century would cast the vote your century had decided upon. If something was undecided, up stepped class two. Classes three, four and five rarely got to vote on anything, from what we understand from the sources, and Livy quite relished writing how the poor were conned without realising it. The reforms also instructed as to what your obligation was to Rome in the context of warfare. The higher the class you were, the more equipment you had to supply for yourself, and this indicated what type of soldier you were. For someone in class one, this was a helmet, shield, greaves, that's protection for the lower leg, cuirass, spear and sword. Class two had almost the same requirement, except for the cuirass. The third class was, as you probably guessed by now, expected to have a more basic kit. Just a helmet, shield and spear, and sword. Class 4 just needed a spear and javelin, and for the poorest in class 5, a sling, javelin, stones, and perhaps the odd swear word. Here is also where I can pick up on the junior and centuries in each class that I mentioned earlier. The junior centuries were expected to fight in the field, that is to say on campaign, and the seniors running defence, most likely stationed back at home. Estimates of the population of Rome at this time are guesswork, but a figure of 30 to 40,000 has been put forward as seemingly reasonable given the land Rome had and other factors. Taking this further, an army of between six and 9,000 has been suggested. What we have is an army equating to one or two legions of the later imperial period. Though even here, there's an appreciation that legions were often understaffed, but hey, let's allow ourselves some working numbers. And if you're feeling a bit deflated over that number, I suggest you sit down, because the Roman army of this period wouldn't resemble anything you might be familiar with. If you've got thoughts of Russell Crowe charging around, or Titus Pullio and Lucius Verinus from HBO's Rome, then I'm just going to have to keep disappointing you. The type of fighting at this time was spear-based infantry. I'll sparingly use the term hoplite and add a sizable caveat to it, because the term does have baggage, but it's also a good way of describing it or using a catch-all term. A class 1 warrior would have resembled a hoplite or something like it. Perhaps they didn't have a bronze curious and instead wore a bronze corslet which fitted like a poncho which Etruscans had, or simply a metal chest piece held in place over a stiffened tunic. Helmets would have varied in style from the simple leather cap a poor infantryman might have had to something more elaborate. There's a famous Villanovan-style helmet which looks like the end of a fountain pen. If you can find it, you'll know what I mean. The primary weapon was the spear, with a sword when things got up close and personal. You may also have had lower leg protection in those greaves, but remember, this wasn't standardised. In terms of the army's composition, it would have been composed of a central corps of heavy infantry and then graduations of it with the addition of the poorer classes acting as skirmishers, and perhaps classes 3, 4 and 5, or 3 and 4, being those lighter infantry. And I should also give a nod to cavalry, who would have been supplied by the wealthy who could afford a horse in the first place. The army of this period wasn't professional, 
law, as I said, was it standardised. The professional, standardised and standing armies of Rome were a long way off, but then, as you know, Rome wasn't built in a day. The criticisms of the Servian reform are largely predicated on this entire coherent restructure happening overnight, or at least in a relatively short time. Scholars like Professor Jeremy Armstrong have suggested that reforms didn't happen, or at least in this way. In a wonderful bit of stat-checking, Armstrong looked at Livy's accounts of troop recruitment in the years following the Regal period. Of the 41 instances of warfare described by Livy between 509 and 450 BCE, almost half of them don't fit the recruitment model of the Servian reform. Livy is effectively contradicting his own history. Around the end of the Regal period, which is less than a century away, there's also a tension between the Roman state and the plebs, or the lower classes, and in particular when it came to military service. In short, they weren't fans of being levied all the time without some sort of political representation. But that's exactly what the Servian reforms were meant to address. So why were the lower classes complaining? And why was the state having problems levying the lower classes? Of course, what would neatly explain all of this is it's a Servian reform where the lower classes hadn't been brought on board just yet. And in fact, the real Servian reforms had been about identifying the haves and the haves-nots and giving the haves more political clout. A cut-down version of the reforms might have been the top two classes being expected to equip themselves and fight and in return got to make the political decisions. Of the poor, well, they were sometimes levied, but there wasn't the obligation for them to be ready to do so because they weren't part of this big social contract just yet. It's a good working theory which does explain some of the contradictions that Dionysus and Livy give us, and also makes a bit more sense. Servius wasn't just about his reforms. He fought they, and, well, okay, did some other reforming, such as dividing Rome into four areas with social structures therein, and reforming actually seems to be something he did a lot of. And this makes sense. If Rome had grown from a group of ne'er-do-wells, corralled by Romulus into a burgeoning city looking to take prominence in the area, then this would have to have happened. But apart from reforming, Servius had another claim to fame, or rather, claim to infamy. The year was 535 BCE. Servius had reigned for around 40 years, and was in that most perilous of situations. He was a king, and an old one at that. It'd almost be odd if there wasn't a faction looking to take control, and this one was very close to home. To understand it more, I need to do that one thing I've always had a blind spot for, understanding family trees. I know, ironic given that the family tree of the Julio-Claudians resembles a drunken game of snakes and ladders to me. I'll start with the basics. Lucius was the previous king, and he had three children. Arons, Lucius, who I'll call Tarquin, and Tarquinia. Now, Tarquinia had been given to Servius to marry, meaning that he was the son-in-law of the king. Servius had two daughters with Tarquinia, both called Tullia. Yeah, I agree. Why would you do that, other than just to make these elaborate family trees more complicated? To help, I'm going to call them Nice Tullia and Nasty Tullia, so you probably guess where this is going. Depending on which account you read, these either married the two sons of the previous King Lucius, or the grandsons of the king. I suppose it would make more sense if they're grandsons, because otherwise he'd be marrying his daughters to his brothers-in-law, and though that was probably fine back then, it does make lining up the ages a bit tricky. Livy has them as the sons, and Dionysus has the grandsons, and I just want to clarify this to avoid confusion. The Tullia twins were very different characters, hence me calling one nice and one nasty. Correspondingly, the sons of Lucius were also in stark contrast to each other. 
Aaron's was very easygoing, and Tarquin very ambitious and cruel. In a fantastic piece of matchmaking, the nice Tullia was married to Tarquin, and the nasty Tullia married to Aaron's. Initially, this kept things in check, with the respective nice partner not going along with the whole let's seize power plan the other was trying to push. Special mention goes to nasty Tullia. She's portrayed as ambitious, untrustworthy, and all-round bad. Here is the contrast with Tanaquil. If you listen to my podcast on Lucius, you'll know that Tanaquil was no shrinking violet and also drove Lucius to greater things. Tullia is contrasted with her mother Tanaquil. Both possess political skill and ambition. But where Tanaquil applied it correctly, Tullia is the woman out of control and the poster woman for what happens when this drive is unchecked or not controlled properly. And her characterisation also falls across a Tarquin because he's approached by nasty Tullia who quickly realised that here was someone who shared some of her ambition. The characterisation of Tarquin is informed by all of this. Here's a man who isn't that clever, he just wants power and when a woman comes along whispering sweet nothings about seizing the throne, he just can't say no. Both these characterizations, the man who is easily swayed by a woman and the ambitious and dangerous woman, are ones we'll find in later criticisms of characters in the imperial period. The two had a vested interest in each other, but there was one problem. They were married to the sibling of the other. Livy, in a classic understatement, wrote that Tarquin and Nasty Tullia emptied their houses with back-to-back funerals, the implication being is that they killed their spouses. The two then married creating a sort of supervillain pairing. According to Livy, things stagnated for a short time. Tarquin and Tullia, I can just call her that from now on, tried to rally support against the king, and this climaxed in a showdown at the Senate House between Servius and Tarquin. Livy's account is quite short, so it's Dionysus' old turn. It's not because it's more accurate, I think by now we can free ourselves of any illusion that Dionysus had a direct account of what happened. And ironically, this makes it almost as interesting as if he had, because here we have Dionysus inventing and imagining what the two men would have said to each other. And in fairness, he was by no means the first historian to create an imagined speech. It was Tarquin who made the first move by sitting in the throne at the Senate House and inviting his supporters in the Senate to gather there. Servius arrived and was infuriated by what he saw and asked the obvious question, Tarquin, what's the problem here? The response given and the way Tarquin argues is all about Dionysus holding Tarquin up and saying, really, this guy? It shows how out of depth he was and thus poorly suited for the role of king. His arguments render him as a man who just wants power and just about say anything. To start with, Tarquin presses the age-old button of the election. And at the beginning of the podcast, I made the comment that though service had sidestepped the whole issue of not being formally elected, it would return. That said, it's difficult to assess whether this was a genuine criticism. After all, it's Tarquin who's making the point, and he's no judge of quality of argument. Servius knocks this point straight back at Tarquin with a neat reminder of the political situation he faced at that time. Firstly, there wasn't the option to have a nice civilised political process applied, as the then king had an axe in his head. Secondly, Tarquin at this point was a child, and here's where Dionysus points to the chronology of all, because... If Tarquin had been a son of Lucius, presumably he could have been considered as a viable candidate. Servius also goes further to state that he did get the validation of the people, and he did try and give it all up, but, you know, people just wouldn't let him. This doesn't stop Tarquin, and he continues and raises the big problem Romans had with kings, dynastic succession, or rather, one of the big problems they had with them. Rather than conceal this, he's straight out with it as a justification, as a right to rule. It didn't matter what went on, 
Tarquin feels that he should have just been given power in some way. And here's the point, it doesn't matter how or whether it's justified, Tarquin just wants power because, well, reasons. To get power, he's happy to divorce or kill his wife and butcher his own arguments. Moments ago, it was Tarquin who's all about correct electoral process when pointing fingers at Servius. Presumably, the power share he wanted would have ignored exactly this. And then he goes further and really wraps himself up in his own argument. By arguing for a sort of dynastic right, whether that means you're automatically the next king or simply selected as the preferred candidate by the Senate, he makes the sort of argument that the sons of Ancus made. You know, the same sons of Ancus who felt they'd been cheated by Lucius out of the same right that Tarquin is now claiming. Tarquin is sort of arguing that those who put the axe in the head of his father or grandfather so they could rule was sort of justified. Livy's account of all of this is much shorter, and the arguments he gives to Tarquin were that Servius was born a slave and should never have been given the throne, and when he was given the throne, he was given by, pause for dramatic effect, a woman. Tarquin there really looking to win friends and influence people. This isn't the only difference between Livy and Dionysus. Livy has an account which is an immediate struggle following the verbal clash with supporters from each side struggling in the Senate. Tarquin then gets hold of Servius and throws him down the steps of the Senate into the road where men sent by Tarquin finish him off and leave his body in the road. But Dionysus' account stretches things out a bit more and sounds a bit like a reheated version of the end of Lucius's reign. In that instance, the sons of Ancus had tried to ferment unrest against Lucius and initially failed before feigning friendship and then returning later to kill the king. And this time it's a similar pattern, with Servius going outside and speaking to the masses following this debate, who jeered Tarquin. Tarquin, perhaps realising which way the wind was blowing, retreated, feigned friendship with the king before picking things up again later, quite literally, and having that same confrontation and throwing him down the steps. Both accounts result in Servius dead or dying in the road, having been thrown down the steps by Tarquin. What happened next is one of those moments which the word infamy was made for. Tullia makes one of the great entrances in antiquity, and it's a nice balance because up until now, her involvement had been driving her husband on to seize power from behind the scenes. But now, she drives literally into history on a chariot, which passed by the Senate and as it did, she saluted her husband who stood on the steps as the king. Tarquin wasn't the only family member she noticed. In the road was Servius, either dead or dying. In anticipation of many a game of Grand Theft Auto, she lined him up in the crosshairs and drove straight over him. It's an act which feels as if it's straight out of a Greek tragedy. It was an act loaded with comment and a theme of inversion. It's where it all goes wrong for Rome. And allow me to explain. That a daughter would kill her father is an obvious inversion of the father-daughter relationship. But what's almost more pernicious here is that Servius was most likely dead, so this was a hugely disrespectful act to the body of her father. As the Greek myths will tell you, killing her relative is for show, disrespecting the corpse is for pro. That this act occurred shortly after Tullius saluting Tarquin as king makes the two acts feel linked. Was it a final reminder of her dedication to him? Was it a symbolic act? Was it a sort of contract or some form of ritual? This brings us to the political dimension. The Senate, a place of order and political process, had been used to midwife the act of a tyrant, and in an instance it had been stripped of its political worth and was now merely an ironic backdrop. The act wasn't just felt in these more abstract terms of politics and culture. 
The very street in which Tullia drove her chariot over Servius was named Vicus Scleratus, Impious Street, as a result. Trying to find the exact location for it in modern Rome isn't easy for all the reasons you've already thought. However, I did read that the road was under the upper section of the Via Cavour, specifically under the steps of San Francesco di Paola. Servius reigned for around 40 years, which brings us up to 535 BCE or thereabouts. Elsewhere, the Babylonian exile for the Jewish people had recently ended, and Athens had Pisastratus as their tyrant. Bit ironic, that. Servius can be easily seen as a social reformer king, and whilst we can point out how the Servian reforms don't hold much weight, it doesn't mean that none happened, and it also doesn't mean there wasn't a social restructure. Think of his war which dates the centuries after his reign. It doesn't mean that there wasn't something there at his time. Rome was after all growing, and the logic followed that a successful society needed to have to navigate that problem of increasing levels of wealth and how its citizens used wealth as identifier in the spheres of war and politics. He also has a dramatic narrative set about his rise and literal fall from power and it dovetails beautifully with his predecessor Lucius. Throw in some nudity, a few dragons and I reckon you'd have a TV hit. The next king, as you might guess, was Tarquin. I've avoided generally naming the following kings in each of these episodes, but I suppose it's hardly a spoiler. Ironically, for a king who was first saluted from a chariot, the wheels come off from the monarchy at Rome during his reign, and expect to hear that joke a lot more in the next podcast. Thanks again for listening to this podcast. If you want to get hold of me, if you want to get in touch, I'm on Twitter, at AncientBlogger, and there's also my website, AncientBlogger.com. Feel free to come and say hi. It's always good to have some nice feedback. If you are listening to this on any sort of platform where you can give a review, please do. Again, it really, really helps. And until next time, and more importantly, keep safe and stay well.